podcast for women of color, where we talk about the issues we're facing on a daily basis. And I am your host, Karen Davis-Thompson, and I have a repeat guest with me today. Uh, We spoke a few months back, you guys remember Corona Mamas, right? And so we're talking with Dr. Mullins again today. And so I'm going to have her introduce herself just to refresh everybody's memory, and then we'll get into today's topic. So hello, Dr. Mullins, how are you? Hey, Karen, I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me on again. I really enjoyed our initial conversation and I'm just glad to be back. Thank you so much. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself, what kind of medicine you practice, um, a little bit about Corona Mamas, just so we can get everybody reacquainted and then we will be ready to go. Great. Yes. Um, So I am a colorectal surgeon in the Atlanta, Georgia area, and I really wanted to chat with you and your audience again this Mm -hmm. month because it is Colon Cancer Awareness Month um, in March. And so I thought um, it would be a great um, focal point for self-care as well, um, especially during the time of a pandemic, you know, realizing that there are certain things that we have to continue on to do to maintain our health um, so that we can, you know, continue to live productive lives. Um, and we initially met, um, uh, you reached out to me. I um, can't remember exactly what prompted you to reach out to me, but I did initiate Corona Mamas. I uh, gave birth to my first child last year, February 2020, and three weeks after found um, myself and my family in the throes of the pandemic, very isolated. And so in looking for a resource and things that I wanted to um, read about, accomplish, and have, um, you know, support system for, I kind of initiated Corona Mamas and you may hear my little one in the background a little bit this evening um, as we're doing uh, this conversation as well. Well, hey, this is living in the age of the pandemic, right? So I've done it. I have a goddaughter who's a few years older, but very inquisitive. And my goddaughter was on the podcast and she just was chatting away. So we just let the baby have it. So it's absolutely fine. Um, I actually saw you on the Today Show. Uh, which is so interesting because as we were talking before we started uh, this episode and um, we were talking about the fact that this is Colon Cancer Awareness Month, which, you know, we talk so much about Women's History Month, International Women's Day. Um, I I had completely forgotten about that until I was watching the Today Show again. And Craig Melvin, one of the anchors, was talking about his brother who had been diagnosed very early, I think in his early 40s, late 30s with colon cancer and um, unfortunately succumbed to the disease in uh, December of last year. And so then when you said, hey, it's March, I want to talk about that, uh, it was a great tie-in. So first, before we actually get into some of what people need to know about colon cancer and the screenings, what prompted you to uh, be a doctor in that field? How, How was that something you wanted to do? So I initially tell people that, I mean, I actually tell people it kind of is a field that found me. Um, You know, I, after medical school, did my training in general surgery, and I actually originally thought I was going to be a trauma surgeon, um, but quickly changed my mind about six months into surgery residency. And, you know, after that, didn't really know what I wanted to specialize in. And so through the process of doing your residency, you have to train in the various specialties. So vascular surgery, you know, heart surgery, thoracic surgery and the like. And one thing that just one of the rotations that I found myself um, kind of drawn to a combination of the patients and the um, day to day of the specialty was colorectal surgery. Um, which I had never even known existed as a specialty prior to my entering residency. 
but it, it's a good mix of a lot of things. You know, I see patients in the office. Um, I, you know, take care of small things, things as small as hemorrhoids and things like that. But then I take care of some major things like colon cancer, um, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. And so I do the major surgeries surrounding that. Um, but I also do get to practice um, preventive med- medicine. So talking to uh, patients and their families about diet, exercise, and different screenings um, for prevention of cancers. And so that just allows me to encompass, you know, so many different areas within medicine that it just really kind of found me. Colon cancer um, tends to be something, if I am understanding correctly, that uh, African Americans have a higher um, I guess, I don't know if, what the word is. We're diagnosed as a, at a higher weight. We have it at a higher rate. Why is that? What has been some of the research around that? So that is a very complex topic um, because it's so what we call is multifactorial. And so I don't want to dig into the weeds and say, you know, by default, African-Americans are at more risk because there's some inherent genetic reason from our roots from Africa. Um, There's social aspects of it as well as um, uh, different uh, medical aspects of it as well. So just to throw out a few numbers, you know, so colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer diagnosed in the U.S. and is actually the second um, cancer killer with regard to cancer. And so I know a lot of times we tend to think, Uh, breast cancer and prostate cancer. Um, But those are a lot of the times spoken about in the context of, okay, so men, prostate cancer, women, breast cancer. But when you lump it all together, um, uh, colorectal cancer is actually a little bit higher on the list with regard to um, death due to cancer. So African-Americans are about 20% more likely to get colorectal cancer and 40% more likely to die from colorectal cancer. So one of the first things that I talk about with the risk amongst the African-American community is lack of communication. You have to talk to your family about what's going on. I know historically the uh, black population has been, you know, very private uh, with regards to health, very prim and proper, especially with regard to something like colorectal cancer. You know, that can be embarrassing. You know, you uh, there's the assumptions that you've done something wrong. And so people don't tend to discuss those things. But it's paramount that we do, because once a polyp, even something as small as a polyp, not even the cancer, but, you know, and we'll talk about the whole process of screening and what a polyp is. But um, once a polyp is diagnosed, now that is a part of your history, that is a part of your family history, and that directly impacts at what age your relatives need to begin their screening and prevention regimen. So for example, um, and again, the actually the new age recommended for screening is 45 as opposed to 50. And we'll delve into the weeds about that as well. But um, for example, if someone goes in and gets their first colonoscopy at the age of 45 and a polyp is discovered or a cancer is discovered, their family is now at risk. And now we recommend their first degree relatives um, to begin their screening at 10 years prior to that age of diagnosis. So that person's children 
should actually start their colonoscopies at the age of 35. So again, we're just kind of going back earlier on in the spectrum to try to catch something, uh, treat it and prevent it from growing on and progressing into cancer. So that is a huge component of what I believe why sometimes these cancers are being found earlier and earlier at later stages is because if family members are not being screened appropriately or they're not sharing the information of those results, we're missing that preventative piece to truly be able to save uh, uh, our friends and family's lives. And that's very interesting. I had never heard that, that, you know, it needs to be a part of the record so that um, others in your family and your line understand that they then need to be screened even earlier um, which is a great, you know, example of, I think why, I mean, obviously I totally agree with you. We can get in this whole philosophical debate about, you know, whatever with black folks who get in it more often, but, um, there are things that just seem to happen in our community. Like that's the first time I'd ever, I've ever heard that, that, um, it's important to do it not only because you want to be healthy, but because it gives the people in your family information that they need to really check on their own health. Uh, so why do you think it is? I, I know you said you think it's embarrassing. Do you think that there is a component? I know like I talked to a girlfriend uh, the other day is, you know, my podcast is turning one and we're, you know, talking to people who've been on the show quite a bit and she is fighting a breast cancer diagnosis. She's in the middle of treatment. Things are going well. But even after she felt the lump, she um, waited to get anything done. Do you think, is there fear there? And with colon cancer, it's not like breast cancer where you feel something or what have you. So what are some of the early signs that would let somebody know that they should be concerned? So with regard to having symptoms, um, symptoms is actually demonstrative of a more advanced process. And that's why screening is key. And so the process of screening. So so the definition of screening is basically to evaluate for an abnormality prior to symptoms arising. So, you know, what, so if someone comes to my office and they're having belly aches and pain, pains and, you know, um, uh, abnormal bowel movements, blood, you know, um, in their bowel movements and things like that. If I then proceed to do a colonoscopy on that person. That's technically termed a diagnostic colonoscopy. They have symptoms and I'm trying to diagnose what's causing those symptoms. So standard mammograms, prostate exams, colonoscopies, those are what we call our screening tests um, to prevent cancer. Um, so, for example, someone comes into my office, um, we set, we have a consultation, discuss the need uh, for them to have a colonoscopy if it's time for them based on their family history, their age, other risk factors and the like. And so um, we set them up for a colonoscopy, which is an outpatient procedure that's done at a hospital or an outpatient facility. Um, laxatives are prescribed in advance. So it's uh, so you can clean out the colon. So during the procedure can see inside really well. And what we're looking for are polyps. And so the best way for me to describe what a polyp is, is kind of like a mole that's growing on the internal lining of the colon. And as long as someone has emptied well, I can see polyps as small as one to two millimeters in size. So extremely small. Um, but polyps are what eventually grow and turn into cancer. So think about it if somebody has, you know, a mole on their body 
if it starts growing and looking crazy and funky, people get concerned about skin cancer. So it's the same, you know, concept and process internally. But the problem is that's not when it's a when it's a mole, when it's a polyp internally, you don't feel it. It's not causing a blockage of your intestine. It's not causing belly aches and pains. It's not causing bleeding. And so once you've advanced to the point that you're having those types of symptoms, um, which in all of those symptoms are nonspecific, you know, patients can have various other things like colitis, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, it can be something with their upper gastrointestinal symptom that can cause, you know, their pancreas, their gallbladder, their liver. A lot of those things um, kind of overlap. And so the symptoms are very nonspecific for colon cancer. And so that's why, again, it's important to be checked before symptoms or problems even arise. So when you, uh, after you, after you've had the procedure, and let's say you find a polyp, what is the next step for them? Is it possible that they have a polyp and it could be that it isn't cancerous? Are they removed regardless of whether or not they're cancerous? Is, is it, you know, like, I guess in my mind, I equate it again, like, you know, I had a biopsy on um, a lump they found. They did a, a biopsy on a piece of it, found that it was nothing and that was the end of it. Or are polyps always removed if you find them in a person's colon? So typically the polyp is removed right then and there at the time of the colonoscopy. Um, so it's removed, it's sent off to the lab when they look at it under the microscope and uh, determine the type of polyp it is. That is part of the component which dictates the next time someone needs a colonoscopy. So there's different uh, components to it, you know, the um, size, type, and location of the polyp um, determines how frequently someone needs their colonoscopies. Um, we start getting concerned about it uh, being the potential for cancer once a polyp reaches about one centimeter in size. And to put that to scale, uh, again, going scientific here again, but um, there's two and a half centimeters roughly in one inch. So we're talking about, you know, less than half of an inch in size is when things can start really harboring cancers. And once they reach a certain size, if it's too large to be removed at the time of the colonoscopy, then that's when we're just talking about doing biopsies of the area to determine if there's cancer present or not, and then definitively, you know, what the treatment will be. Um, and, um, you know, kind of like I mentioned, size, type, and location of the polyp dictates how frequently the colonoscopy will need to be. So if uh, it could be, you know, run the gamut of one year, three year, five years, just depending on what the full details of those findings are. And I know, you know, you can't speak for all in medicine, but do you find that it is sometimes difficult, like, let's say, um, you, you have a family history. And so now I want to try and get screened at 35 instead of the recommended age. Um, do people tend to have trouble getting that done? I know, you know, we've talked in the past about having to advocate for yourself. Maybe sometimes a provider isn't really listening to what you're saying, or is it pretty routine that if there is a, do a documented history, it's easier to get um, that prescribed earlier if you need it? 
Yes, if there's a documented history in the family or even a personal history of any other type of cancer, if a, if someone has, you know, battled with uh, prostate cancer or breast cancer, they uh, may be at a little bit higher risk for colon cancer. So they should start getting their um, evaluations earlier. So, yes, typically if there's a family history, it's a little bit easier to go through the process to start earlier um, as far as for the screening. Um and I do have to lay out the caveat that there are several different medical societies and institutions that recommend the screening age for 45 for everyone. So that includes the American Cancer Society, uh, the, Mer the American College of Gastroenterologists, so the GI doctors, um, our national organization, the uh, um, American College of, uh, excuse me, American Society of Colon and Rectal Surgeons. And at the end of last year, the U.S. Preventative Task Force updated their guidelines to 45. So we're finding that more and more insurers are covering that younger age, but the final body that is the determinant for the insurance companies to guarantee that they paid for screening at the age of 50 has not officially come out with those guidelines yet. So it's definitely important to have those conversations, those thorough conversations with your physicians to understand truly what your risk is so that it can be documented. Um, sometimes there are genetic um, and hereditary syndromes that run in families where folks need to be tested earlier. For example, if a man comes into my office and he's just complaining of belly aches and pains or a hemorrhoid or something like that, I always make sure that I look at their family history. And sometimes they, uh, different patients may, especially young patients, may blow it off and not really mark off the family history because they're like, well, I'm here for a hemorrhoid, so I don't really need to worry about that stuff. And they'll kind of skip over that portion. So I always inquire. I'm like, do you have any family history of any cancer in your family, not just colon cancer, since you're in my office. And if a guy lays out like, you know what, I've had five aunts with breast cancer, that triggers my mind that that person may be at increased risk for colon cancer um, because there are other genetic syndromes and hereditary things that link different cancers together. And so it's extremely important for patients, young and old, no matter what, to number one, talk with their physicians about their family history. And then when you follow up with your primary care physician the next year and the next year and the next year, if something has changed in your family history, then, you know, don't just mark, oh, same as prior, you know, because your cousin just got diagnosed with colon cancer last year and they were, you know, 41. That needs to be updated in your record so that everyone knows because that may completely change our recommendations for monitoring you. Thank you for that explanation. Um, that's helpful. And I also wanted to ask, is there an even split in terms of uh, men versus women who um, are diagnosed with and who get colon cancer? Or is there one gender that seems to, um, I guess, be diagnosed or have it more than the other? It's slightly male predominant, but um, it's becoming closer and closer, you know, together to where there's no difference in how we screen or how frequently we screen. It doesn't change what our recommendations are for gender versus gender. So it's not like 45 for men and, and, and 48 for women. Or if you had a polyp, then men need to be screened at every three years, but women only need every five years. So it's similar enough to where everybody has the same kind of guidelines. 
And I know I ask because, you know, even when I see things on TV, a lot of times it seems to be, and maybe it's just me, but it seems to be very male dominated in terms of talking about going to get um, screened for colon cancer. Um, so that's why I was curious. I don't always, and have you seen that as well? I mean, when you, when you see people you doing PSAs or there are people talking about it, like I just said, I saw it on the Today Show, it tends to be around men. You know, we were all surprised when Chadwick Boseman um, had, had colon cancer, nobody knew, and he passed away. Um, do you think there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect there where we need to really um, maybe help women to understand that it's important for them too? Yes, I think so. And sometimes I will see uh, a couple come into the office, you know, husband and wife, you know, significant other spouses, others. And, um, you know, she's prompted him to come in to get her his consultation for his colonoscopy. And I turn and look at her and I'm like, how old are you? Have you had your colonoscopy? And she's like, I don't need one. And I'm like, who told you that? And so um, I definitely think um, historically, for whatever reason, um, and, you know, it was it was definitely in the past much more a male um, predominant disease. But, you know, now um, just kind of the same thing as like heart disease. You know, it was always heart attacks and strokes and all those things were, you know, uh, tended to be thought of as a man's disease. And now we're finding that, you know, women are just at, as um, at risk and black women are even actually more at risk for heart disease than um than their uh, white male counterparts. And so um, these are discussions that we have to have that it's both uh, male and female need to be evaluated and treated um, and screened. And how do um, organizations determine the recommended age? So you said it was 50 and several organizations have now changed it to 45. How are those recommendations typically made? So every so often, um, organizations, um, you know, the National Institutes of Health, the CDC, the American Cancer Society will basically go through uh, the databases that exist on um, patients and their outcomes. And so um, it will historically look back at, you know, uh, age, gender, gender, race, um, the procedures that they had, and then the frequency, uh, looking at death rates and all of those things, the death rates and what the um, uh, official cause of death was. And so over time, every so often, they'll look back at all those numbers. And then so when you see a downtrend um, in the age um, and and an increase in the uh, severity of the disease at time of diagnosis, that indicates that we're missing uh, a, a significant group of people. And so we now have to backtrack and start checking on them a little bit earlier. And you mentioned that while most organizations, and you listed several, have changed it to 45, there is one where I guess a lot of times insurance determines whether or not they're going to pay has yet to do that. And do we know, are they looking into that? Is there a reason why they have not joined these other groups that are recommending 45? It is my understanding that it is um, actively in process to work towards that. Well, I'm hoping that they get there to make it easier for uh, everyone who wants to be screened because it's really scary. As we were talking before, you know, in the case of Craig Melvin's brother and even um, Chadwick Boseman, both of them would have been younger than even the 45 uh, to be screened for colon cancer. So hopefully that will definitely take place Um, because I know sometimes insurance companies can give people a hassle right when they're trying to 
get all of those types of tests done. Um, so we talked about it a little bit more, a little bit, but can we get into more of what the process I've had a colonoscopy before? So what the process is and the prep looks like, I think for some people they hear about the prep and they get all freaked out about that. So how does that process work? Sure. Um, but really quickly on your last comment, I wanted to backtrack one second, just, um, uh, focusing a little bit on um, Craig Melvin's brother and Chadwick Bozeman. You know, unfortunately, we don't obviously know all the details, all the ins and outs of, you know, how they got to their diagnosis and, and, and treatment and demise. Um, so there's one aspect of, you know, should we start screening earlier? But there's also the other components of number one, was there a family history that was maybe not discussed or not fully known or uh, processed through to understand should they have truly been screened earlier? Um, but also, you know, were, were was there at any point symptoms or signs that they were exhibiting that, number one, they didn't come forth about or number two, you know, wasn't fully addressed or explored by their physician? And so I, I, I do want to um, not every, not have everybody freak out and think they have to start getting their colonoscopies at 30, just only because there's so much information about those two particular situations that we just don't know. It's so important to get it done as quickly as you can, because in their cases, and you're right, there could have been other things going on that we're just not aware of. But obviously, the, the sooner or whenever you're available to have it done, the better, just because there are cases like that that may slip through or things that happen even before the 45, which is now the age that people are recommending it. But you're right. There are things that may have been at play there that we just obviously have no privy to that information. Exactly. But with regard to the process of the colonoscopy, um, so yeah, so, you know, the dreaded, and, and, and it's not horrible. I mean, you know, the prep is the day before. It is what it is. You take a whole bunch of laxatives. There's different types of preps. Some are prescription. Some physicians use a, use a combination of over-the-counter laxatives. But it's a, it's a fancy colon cleanse. It's a purge. We want to empty out your colon of, you know, any solid matter so that the camera can see adequately um, during the course of the procedure, because again, you know, as long as things are cleaned out well, we can see polyps uh, pretty dang small, you know, one to two millimeters in size and treat them and remove them and prevent them from growing and turning into cancer. Um, so the day of the procedure, um, you come in, oh, sorry, I failed to mention, on that day before, um, in addition to taking those laxatives, no solid foods that day. Um, so that's another bummer people get into. So you're, you're drinking a lot of uh, juices, Gatorades, Powerades, you know, things that are clear, broths, teas, jellos, um, you know, popsicles, things like that. Um, but I tell people uh, the prep may be bad, but it's not as bad as cancer. So, you know, we definitely have to put everything into perspective. Um, so the day of the procedure, um, you arrive at your facility, um, you get checked in, anesthesia team, overwhelming majority of uh, places are using um, uh, the anesthesia services to um, sedate the patients now, but an IV is established, you're sedated, so you're mostly in deep dream la-la land. It's not general anesthesia, um, like, you know, when you're undergoing major surgery. So you're sedated for about 20, 30 minutes or so, you come to relatively quickly. Um, you know that same day prior to you leaving, whether or not anything abnormal was found, whether or not any biopsies were required, and then you follow up with your physician afterwards if, um, you know, biopsies were obtained to then determine, you know, uh, if any further treatment is needed or when your next colonoscopy is required. 
And what about these home kits I've been seeing now where um, they're saying they can use that to screen for colon cancer? Are those recommended? And how, I mean, how effective is that? So the what we call is the gold standard for screening is the colonoscopy because the colonoscopy can be both diagnostic, meaning you can look and you can diagnose something, you can see if there's a polyp or not, um, and it's simultaneously therapeutic. You can treat, burn, remove, get rid of that polyp all in one fell swoop. So that is the gold standard to which um, all other tests are compared. Now there is, you know, risks of bleeding, there's risks of injuring the colon, um, there's about a 1% risk of what we call is perforation or injuring the colon. Um, there's about a 2% risk of missing an advanced cancer or an, uh, um, an, or an advanced polyp. Sorry, there's a 2% risk of uh, missing an advanced polyp or a cancer. Um, so these are the numbers and the statistics to which all other tests are compared to. The caveat to the home kits, the stool tests, the, um, you know, the rectal exams where they're checking for microscopic blood is number one, that test cannot fully diagnose um, a cancer or the presence of a polyp. It can indicate that there is something abnormal within the colon that needs further investigation. So if any of those tests come back positive, then the follow up to that is actually to get a colonoscopy. Um, which can fully diagnose if something is truly wrong. Patients should know that the screening tests are paid for by insurance, but if someone gets one of those home kits, uh, one of the stool sample tests, if that comes back positive and you need the follow-up colonoscopy, that is no longer considered a screening colonoscopy because you've had an abnormal test. It is now a diagnostic colonoscopy that is not uh, covered under the screening purposes of your insurance plan. And so it's going to be subject to your copay deductible and all of those things. Um, some of the other tests and kits um, can be abnormal and based upon um, your recent diet. Um, you know, if someone, certain of the tests that are basically just testing for blood in the stool, um, if someone had a really rare steak <laughs> within a certain period of time beforehand, um, there's going to be stool, um, uh, excuse me, blood that is going to be potentially identified in that test on the stool. And so now you're going to commit to a colonoscopy for further diagnosis. And so there's just so many different things with that. Now, there are some patients who, number one, if they absolutely refuse to get a colonoscopy and they're not going to do anything and you can at least get them to do one of those other screening tests, why it may not be quite as um, accurate, it's something for you to go by. Um, and then there are certain patients who uh, may have other high risk factors um, for uh, the procedure as far as getting the anesthesia medicines and things like that. And so um, a less risky procedure may be, you know, a CT, what we call as a virtual colonoscopy via CT or some of the um, stool tests and stuff like that. But again, if any of those come back abnormal, you have to follow up with a colonoscopy um, for full diagnosis. And I mean, I know the answer to this. I've had a, a um, colonoscopy, but just hear it from the doctor. Is there any pain that is typically associated with it after the screening or the procedure is done? Not typically. 
um, you know, unless there's some sort of inflammatory process or something going on in the colon, something more abnormal. But traditionally, there can be some bloating um, because air is utilized to kind of tint up the colon so you can visualize and see on the inside. Um, so some people can have some cramping and bloating um, due to that air installation, but it's traditionally a painless procedure. Now, if someone battles with hemorrhoids and things like that, hemorrhoids, fissures, and other things around the rectal area, um, that prep the day before can be pretty uncomfortable um, because you're basically having diarrhea. But in and of itself, the procedure and the process, even if polyps are removed, um, uh, don't have a, a real recovery period or anything like that due to pain. And when the polyps are found before they become cancerous and they're removed, are there follow-up treatments? I know you said they may have to be screened more regularly, but are there any follow-up treatments that the patient or, or um, things that they have to have done other than, okay, we've removed the polyps and we just need to monitor you and have you come in like every two years, three years, whatever is determined needs to be done? Sure. So, um, you know, some benign polyps that are not cancerous are still pretty large. And so some will require surgery just to remove that area because it's too large um, to remove via the colonoscopy. Um, but no, traditionally, um, the once a polyp is removed, um, there's no further treatment needed for that. And what is the survival rate when colon cancer is caught in the early stages? So there are four stages um, of cancer, one, two, three, four, one being um, the earliest, four being the most aggressive. And so um, stage one, so the difference between stage one and stage two really is purely just size. Um, then Moving on to stage three, that means things have progressed to uh, locally to the lymph nodes in that area of the colon. And stage four means things have progressed outside of that area to other parts of the body. So the liver and the lung and um, brain and various other areas. But uh, cancers caught, for example, um, at stage one um, have about a 95% um, five-year survival rate. Um, once you get to stage three, we're talking about a 50% um, uh, survival rate at five years out. So definitely a big difference um, in catching cancers um, earlier rather than later. And for example, um, stage one and the overwhelming majority of stage two cancers are solely treated with surgery and then, you know, frequent monitoring thereafter. Um, once you're getting into stage three and above, that's when those other treatments come into play, um, uh, chemotherapy and, and, and if it's rectal cancer, radiation therapy and, and those things. And are there certain things that a person who has been, let's say they had polyps early or they were uh, and they, those polyps were caught early or they had a, a cancer diagnosis, maybe stage one, two, it was dealt with early. Are there signs or things that they need to look for um, to know whether or not that's recurring or is it because obviously it's one of those things where you don't know until you're having some serious issues that there isn't anything they need to look out for uh, once they've been um, you know, given a clean bill of health that first time around? 
we're always going to ask our patients to be cognizant of any changes that are persistent, um, you know, changes in the bowels, abdominal pain, change in the um, size, shape, uh, shape, caliber of the stool that kind of persists more than two weeks that can't be really attributed to a change in the diet or a change in a medicine. But, um, you know, it takes about five to 10 years for a very small benign polyp to grow and develop into cancer. And so that's why we're pretty confident that, hey, if I just found one two millimeter polyp that was completely benign, didn't show any signs of precancer, then we're pretty confident that you just need your next colonoscopy in five years. Now, again, you know, statistics are statistics. There's about a 2% rate of missing, you know, an advanced polyp and things like that. So um, it's definitely if someone has a history of being diagnosed with polyps or anything, you know, if there is a change, don't say, oh, well, they said, oh, I'm okay for five years. No, go ahead and get checked out, talk about it so you can see if, you know, you need to get one sooner. Thank you. Um, other than, um, you know, making sure that they have their screenings regularly, are there things that we can do, uh, whether it's, you know, are there certain foods that we should eat, others we should stay away from, um, you know, does exercise play a factor? What are things that we can do to, I mean, obviously you can do everything right and still you may, you know, perhaps come down with a cancer diagnosis, but are there things that we can do um, to kind of help mitigate some of that possibly? Yes, definitely. Lifestyle plays a role um, in, in various um, invariable uh, rates or effect. Um, so diets that are high in fruits and vegetables, you know, fiber and whole grain, um, those are the diets that are going to be healthy fuel for the colon. Um, uh, diets that are low in red meat, um, low in saturated fats, um, low in um, uh, alcohol consumption, those are going to be the diets that are going to be beneficial to the colon, um, avoiding smoking, um, avoiding um, a sedentary lifestyle. So making sure we're active, you know, people don't really, and actually having an active lifestyle is one of the first treatments that we talk about for when patients even come in with constipation, you know, besides drinking your water and eating your fiber, you know, folks um, don't, you know, kind of tend to think about uh, the muscles that are in the colon and the intestines that have to actually squeeze and push, you know, the food and the bowels and everything forward. So an active lifestyle, um, you know, moderate activity several times a week gets that blood flow going so it can, the blood flow can feed those uh, muscles so they can have adequate fuel to pump and propel um, the waste and everything forward as it should um, to be a healthy colon. And so all of those things, you know, the basics. And, you know, when we're talking about the African-American community, and I, I tell my other physician colleagues about it too, you know, it's not as simple as just saying, eat right, be healthy, exercise. You know, we have to meet our patients where they are and, you know, really understand what their situations are and how um, they may or may not be able to achieve some of those goals. You know, African-American patients, are going to be uh, more likely to live in poor neighborhoods, be um, have uh, less levels of education, um, have you know lower incomes, and so they can live in areas of what we call our food deserts. So they may not necessarily have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. So we need to make sure that we are having those conversations about okay, if you can't get fresh fruits and veggies, uh, frozen is a great alternative. Um, 
if, you know, just really getting that healthy food in is very difficult for you, then supplementing, um, getting some sort of fiber supplement. So the Benefiber, the Metamucils, even the generic or something. So you're literally getting the fiber in your body. Um, you know, those are things, those are great alternatives if you can't get it naturally via the food. Um, you know, as far as for activity and exercise, if someone lives in a downtrodden neighborhood and, you know, they, they don't have money to access a gym membership and they may not live in the safest neighborhood to just go walk outside, you know, really encouraging them, hey, if you have a smartphone or something, just go onto YouTube and get some of those at-home exercise regimens that you can do without any weights or anything like that, just using your own body in your own home, you know, but just kind of meeting patients where they are so they can understand that they can take control of what they can control. They just need to be provided with the information to understand what the alternatives are if they can't do, you know, what is preferred. Thank you so much for that. Can you uh, give us just anything that you think we need to know uh, before we wrap up? Um, You know, I think we did the highlights of all the topics, you know, this could, this can be such a complex topic for some people based upon, you know, their personal history and their family history. But, you know, if, if there's one thing I could ask for people to get out of this conversation is to have conversations, talk about it. You can save your sibling's life, your parent's life. You can save your own child's life by simply having the conversation. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, Remembering again that uh, March is Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Um, I can't stress that enough. We, um, I think, overlooked that a little bit. Um, And I guess maybe I'll ask that question as well. Uh, Do you think that sometimes it gets uh, overlooked a bit that we don't talk about the fact that it's this month? Do you think we really stress that enough to get the awareness out in the month of March? Um, you know, I think compared to a lot of the other cancers, you know, we we probably don't get as much publicity. There's different institutions and organizations that are working on it. Um, the uh, Colorectal Cancer Alliance, um, you know, there's definitely different. And a lot of times people may find more local organizations, grassroots organizations uh, do, you know, that are started by uh, loved ones of uh, people who have been affected by the disease. But one of our goals as um, our American Society of Colorectal Surgeons um, is to get that information out there um, because, you know, the breast cancers and the prostate cancers and the lung cancers tend to get a little bit more attention. Um, but, you know, colon cancer is a real killer and um, it's it's starting to affect um, younger and younger populations. And I, so I think with that, um, we're definitely going to see more publicity and push around it. And so we're hoping that, to get this message out. And if people want to learn more about um, colon cancer, maybe FAQ, uh, that sort of thing. Is there a place that you recommend that people can go to learn more? Yes. So there's several sites. Um, so our colorectal society, the website is um, F is in Frank, A S is in Sam, crs.org. That's FASCRS.org. And so there's patient information there as well. Um, there's always the American Cancer Society, which is cancer.org. Um, and then um, um, the Colorectal Cancer Alliance. Um, so it's uh, ccalliance.org. Um, they're doing a lot of stuff. I think they actually partnered with Craig Melvin here recently for him to be either on the board or something here recently. So again, the word is getting out there to focus on colorectal cancer. 
Thank you so much for that. I'll be sure to get all of those website addresses from you and we will put them in the show notes so that people can just click on the link and learn more. Um, again, this was a great conversation to have. I really appreciate you for reaching out so that we can talk about it. It's something that men and women need to be concerned with. And so I hope that everybody uh, will really listen to this message and get inspired to find out more. If you're in the age to be screened, get screened, You know, talk to your family, see if there's a history there so that if you need to get screened earlier, you can do that too. Um, that's all the time we have for today. If there's anything you want to hear us talk about here on In My Shoes, as always, you know, you can hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Again, that's kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. And until our next episode, be blessed. Want to know more about what we're doing at In My Shoes? Head on over to our website, www.inmyshoestoday.com and join our mailing list. You will also find great information there about all of the wonderful journals that we have to offer. If it's self-care that you're into, a gratitude mindset, or you need a little help getting started, we have something for you. And don't forget, hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com if you want to join our journaling Facebook group.